It is so good to be with you this past weekend. The theme verse for our students was 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12. Do not let anyone look down on you because of your youth, but set an example for all believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. It just so conveniently happens that that verse is in our next passage as we continue our 10-part sermon series through 1 Timothy simply called Building God's Church. This morning I want to speak to you on the topic of gospel hope. I want to come to you from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 9 to 16. I invite you to take your Bible and draw your sword. Meet me there. And once you have found your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. 1 Timothy chapter 4 I'll begin at verse 9. I'll conclude at verse 16. Please hear the word of the Lord. This is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. And for this we labor and strive. That we've put our hope in the living God. Who is the savior of all men and especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. Set an example for the believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift, which was given you through a prophetic message when the body of elders lay their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourselves wholly to them, so that everyone may see your progress. Watch your life. Watch your doctrine closely. Persevere in them. Because if you do, you'll save both yourself and your hearers. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, understanding, and obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. This morning I want to give you a 3D description of our gospel hope. The three D's include the words devotion, dedication, and diligence. If you and I understand the gospel hope, then we are devoted to our living God. It's verses 9 to 13. We are dedicated to the gift of God. That's verse 14. And we are diligent in our obedience to a holy God. Verses 15 and 16. First and foremost, you and I are to be devoted to the living God. Paul begins our passage with the third of five trustworthy statements in the pastoral epistles. When I say the phrase pastoral epistle, I am talking about three New Testament letters that Paul wrote to his two sons in the ministry, Timothy and Titus. The three letters include 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Timothy was the pastor of an established church in Ephesus. Titus was the pastor of a church start on the island of Crete. 2,000 years have passed, but not a whole lot has changed. Those are the only two types of churches that can ever exist. Either it's an established church or it's a new church start. And God's people need both a healthy established church and new planted churches. And so here in the first century... The Apostle Paul has two sons in the ministry. They are Timothy, they are Titus. He writes them three letters. We call them the pastoral epistles. In those three letters, 
Paul expresses five trustworthy statements. We read of it in 1 Timothy chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, here in 1 Timothy chapter 4, then in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and Titus chapter 3. Now of all five of those statements, only two of them follow it up with, it's a statement that deserves full acceptance. Our passage this morning is the second and final time that we read of that. The first time we heard it was in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. Here in 1 Timothy chapter 4, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. We put our hope in the living God. This is a statement that is paramount to the Apostle Paul. He says this is a trustworthy statement. It deserves full acceptance from all believers. We place our faith, we put our faith and our hope in the living God. When Paul writes about our hope, in the, in the Bible, hope is a calm assurance. It is a confidence in Christ. Now, you and I use the word hope today and we express a desire, but it's laced with a smidgen of doubt. We use the word hope in these ways. I hope to get accepted to my college of choice. I hope to make a good grade on the chemistry test. I hope to get a good report from the doctor later this week. All those statements of hope, they express our desire, but there's laced a smidgen of doubt. It might not turn out the way we want it to turn out. But in the Bible, whenever the author uses the word hope, it is a confident, calm assurance in Christ. We put our hope in the living God. Our hope is not in systems or society. Our hope is not in friends or family members. Our hope is in the living God. This God who is living and active. This God who's the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. This is the God who Paul earlier describes as the God who is immortal, eternal, invisible, the only God. He's in a class all by himself. He's the God who was and the God who is and the God who always will be. We place our hope in the living God. Our God is not dead. Our God is not antiquated. Our God is not out of touch. Our God is not old school. Our God is living and active. We put our hope in the living God. So this is a statement that deserves full acceptance. As believers, we put our hope in the living God. Now Paul brackets that great statement that we put our hope in the living God with two phrases. These two phrases help to describe and amplify the fact that we put our hope in the living God. The first statement is right before it. The second statement is right after it. Right before it, Paul says, to this we labor and strive. The word labor means to exert great effort. The word strive is the Greek word from which we get the English word agonize. In other words, we are striving, we are straining, we are agonizing, we are putting everything we got into this hope that we have in the living God. We are so confident that God will not let me down. We are so confident that God will never leave us nor forsake us that we put everything we've got into God. We put everything we've got into the one who pursues us. For the one who pursues us is worth us pursuing him. The one who loves us is the one worth loving. The one who follows after us is worth following in heart, life, and mind. We put everything we've got into our God. We give him our success. 
We give him our setbacks. We give him our confidence. We give him our worries. We give him our accomplishments and we give him our sin. There is nothing that we can't give our God because our God is so worth it. Our God is the living God. We strive, we labor, we agonize to put everything we've got into the living God. We've said before, but it bears repeating, Christ plus nothing equals everything that we need. We are so confident in this living God that Christ plus nothing equals everything that we need. There's a second statement that modifies that deserving uh, uh, the statement uh, as a trustworthy statement that deserves full acceptance. The, the second modifying phrase says that he is the savior of all men, especially those who believe. Now, what in the world does that mean? Paul says that our God is the savior of all men, all mankind, especially those who believe. When Paul writes that phrase, he is not communicating that our God is a universalist. Our God does not simply open up heaven and let anybody come in. God does not treat heaven the way our federal government treats the southern border. All right? God is much more selective, and our government ought to be much more selective, but that's another sermon for another day. But our God does not simply open up heaven and say, everybody come in because God is somehow a universalist. No, the Bible is clear that God is selective. He has sovereignly selected you from the very foundation of the world. When it says that God is the Savior of all mankind, what Paul is referencing is that our great God gives common grace to the redeemed and the reprobate. An example of that is that both believers and non-believers share the same air. Just because you're a Christian, your air doesn't smell better. Just because you're a Christian, your air is not less polluted. Just because you're a Christian, your air is no different than the air that is breathed in by non-Christians. The fact that God gives air to the redeemed and the reprobate is evidence of his common grace. Whether you believe in God, whether you don't believe in God, you are alive because of God. Whether you think he's Lord, whether you think he's a liar, I'm here to tell you you're alive because of God's goodness and his common grace that's been given to all mankind. We move and breathe and have our being just because God is God. And God is gracious. He's gracious to all types of people. He's gracious to all people. He's gracious to men and to women and boys and girls. One example of that is that we share the same air with the righteous and the reprobate. But our God gives salvific grace to only those who believe. So he is the sustainer in some ways, that's what the word Savior, the sustainer of all mankind. He is the Savior and sustainer, especially to those who believe. The Bible is very clear that God has sovereignly selected you who are Christians, that he has chosen you before the very foundation of the world. And the Bible is equally clear that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that calling on the name of the Lord is willful and it's voluntary. 
So God has the power and prerogative to save anybody, and God has the power and prerogative to save everybody who calls on the name of the Lord. Let me say it another way. The death of Jesus on the cross is sufficient to cover the sins of anybody, but the death of Jesus only covers uh, those who call on his name. It's only applied to those who believe. So anybody can believe. Anybody can trust Jesus as Savior. And the fact that you call on the Lord as your Savior gives evidence that you are a saint that's been sovereignly selected from the very foundation of the world. So Paul is reminding Timothy that we put our hope in the living God. This living God is so powerful, he's so um, attuned to who we are and what we need that we labor and strive, we agonize for him, we give everything we've got to God and we do that because he's the savior and sustainer of all mankind especially to those of us who believe Paul says to Timothy I want you to teach these things this reference to teaching is a common reference in the pastoral epistles in fact Paul says on 22 occasions teach these things he says something about teaching 22 times in those three letters, which tells you that our Christian faith is more taught than caught. Our Christian faith is fundamentally a faith that is taught. The doctrine that we believe, those things that we trust and hold, those things are taught to us. We don't just catch Christianity. We, we are taught Christianity. We're taught to believe and we're taught how to behave in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul just reminds Timothy, teach these things. Paul knows that Timothy's a young pastor. He's probably about the age of 30. He says, I know that you're in First Baptist Church of Ephesus. You've got some young people there. You've got some people your age. You've got some people that are older than you. But don't let anybody look down on you because of your youth. You set an example for them in five areas. You set an example in speech, in life, in love, in faith, and in purity. For Paul to say, you set an example, literally he's saying, you model Christ for them. To use our vernacular today, what Paul is saying to Timothy is, I want you to be an influencer. I want you to influence those around you. You have been created to influence others for Christ. So you be an influencer. I don't care how old you are, how young you are. You be an influencer for Christ. And you influence people in five primary ways. You influence them by your speech. That means what you say and how you say it. The words that tumble from your lips and the way you say those words that tumble from your lips are to be done in such a manner that it points people to Christ. Because you're an influencer, you're a model, you're an example that drives people to the Lord. So you do that in your speech, but you also do it in life. The word life means it's the summation of your decisions. It's how you live, it's what you do, it's the decisions that you make. May the decisions that you make, the actions that you do, the things you refrain from doing, may all those things in life be an example for others. He also says that you're an influencer, you're an example, you're a model in love. Of course, the word love is agape. It's God's love. It's unconditional, unmerited, no strings attached. What Paul is reminding Timothy is the love that God has shown to you must be love shown through you. If you've received this kind of agape love, you've got to share and show this kind of agape love. And you do it in such a way that you're an exemplary model, an example, an influencer for Christ. Christ. 
You also do it in faith. If you're in faith, faith always leads to faithfulness. You can't say, I have faith in God, but not live a life of faithfulness unto God. Faith always leads to faithfulness. Faith can simply be defined in this way. It's trusting God regardless of the outcome. You don't say, God, I'll trust you if everything works out okay. Before you even know how it's going to turn out, you say, Lord, I have faith in you. I don't know I don't know what's going to happen. I don't, know, I don't know how the relationship is going to be restored. I don't know what the doctor is going to say. I don't know what I'm going to get on that final grade. I don't know if I'm going to make the team or not. I don't know what you're doing. I don't know if the prodigal son will be retrieved. I don't know what's going to happen. But, Lord, I trust you regardless of the outcome. That's faith. Faith is taking God at his word. It's trusting him regardless of the outcome. Paul says to Timothy, you be an influencer. You set the example. You model what it looks like to be a man of faith. Students, this is what Paul is saying to you. I want you to be an influencer to show other people what it looks like to be a godly guy and a godly gal living in this world. So you chase hard after the one who chases after you. You're an example, not just in speech and life and love and in faith, but also in purity. Let me just remind you that Timothy is living in the days of the first century in the city of Ephesus. And Ephesus had some raunchy, radical sexual immorality. In the city of Ephesus was a temple to Artemis. And all types of sexual perversion was done in the temple and outside the temple. And so there was promiscuity that, that was abounding. And Paul says to Timothy, you set an example in purity. You show people what it looks like to be a man of holiness, a man of purity. What Paul is saying to Timothy, he's also saying to everyone in the congregation, you show people, you be an influencer for purity in your life and collectively in our life and even in our community. In his book entitled The Whole in Our Holiness, it is Kevin DeYoung who says sexual immorality surrounds all of us. But there are far too few of us who simply close our eyes. Sexual morality is all around. And just because it's around you, it doesn't mean you have to look at it. Just because it's around you doesn't mean you have to engage in it. Just because it's around you doesn't mean that you have to step into it. No, there is so much sexual immorality that is all around us because we know that sex sizzles and, 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 and sex sells. We, we get all that. Sexual immorality surrounds us. But Kevin DeYoung simply says there are far too few of us who simply close our eyes to it. You are to be an influencer. You're to be a, an example. You're to be a model for Christ. Don't let anybody look down on you because of your youth. Set an example for all believers in speech, in life, in love, in faith, in purity. It's at this point that Paul tells Timothy to devote yourself to this living God. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Devote yourself to this. The word devote, it means to occupy oneself with. It means to stick to it. It means to cling or to clutch or to adhere to. He says, devote yourself. Stick with this. Stick to this preaching and teaching. You are a pastor, Timothy. 
And the primary task that you have is to accurately and faithfully and clearly preach the gospel. So you devote yourself to the preaching and teaching of God's word. I told you a few weeks ago that preaching is not the only task that I have as your pastor, but there is nothing more important than the task of preaching that I have as your pastor. It is the most important task because my job, my calling, what I'm supposed to do is to stand up and boldly declare, thus saith the Lord, and to say it with conviction and to say it with clarity. I think everybody has to know who they are. And and I am a hot-hearted, gospel-preaching pastor. That's who I am. That's how I'm wired. And I think that that phrase is overly redundant because to be a pastor in my mind, implies that you're a preacher. And if you're a preacher, you better proclaim the gospel. And if you proclaim the gospel, you better do it with some hot-hearted passion. You better do it passionately at the top of your head to the bottom of your feet and all around you because you got the greatest material in the world. You're talking about Jesus, the Lord and Savior of all mankind. You're talking about God himself, the Trinitarian God, God who is Father, Son, and Spirit. You've got some great material, so you better speak about it in a passionate way. you got to know who you are. And I realize... That not all believers are called to be pastors, but all believers are called to be devoted to the living God. You are to stick to the one who sticks to you. You are to adhere to the one who clutches you. You are to devote yourself to the living God. You are to occupy yourself with God. The question becomes, um, how devoted are you to the Lord? Do you occupy yourself with God? And most of us would say, yeah, I want to. I think I do. Sometimes. Most of the time. Kind of. The reality is we have so many things that are competing for our attention. So many things that are competing to occupy our heart and our mind. We are occupied with our friends and our families and our vacations. We are occupied with shopping and sports and sex. We are occupied with politics and our problems, and even the crabgrass that grows in our front yards. I mean, we are occupied by a host of things, some of them large, some of them small, some of them massive, some of them minute. We are occupied with all types of things, and the devil just wants to keep us busy busy being occupied with everything else. Yet here, Paul is crystal clear. We are to be devoted to the living God. We are to put our hope in the living God, and we're to be devoted to that. We're to cling to that. We're to clutch to that. We're to stick with this and never give up. So the question does need to be asked, how devoted are you to God? Do you think about God more than you think about anybody else, including yourself? Do you think about God more than you think about anybody else? There's some very important people in your life But there's no one more important than Jesus. Do you think about him more than you think about anybody else? Do you make it your aim to please him more than anything else? More than any other desire that you have? Do you have the desire to say, Lord, I make it my aim to please you? And do you rearrange your schedule to do the things God wants you to do? We put in our schedule pretty much anything that we really want to do. And so my question is, are you devoted to the living God in such a way that you allow him to shape your calendar? 
that you say, Lord, before I do anything, before I say anything, before I make decisions, before I engage in this or I refrain from doing that, I just want to submit all of that to you. Lord, am I kind of in the right area? Am I, am I in the ballpark? Am I going the right way? Am I in step with your spirit? Am I doing what you want me to do? I devote myself to you. I cling to you. I clutch to you. I adhere to you. I, I stick with you because you, you have stuck with me through everything. So God, I am devoted to you. Paul says we have this gospel hope and first and foremost, it is a devotion to the living God. Secondly, not only is it being devoted to the living God, but you and I are called to be dedicated to the gift of God. It's in verse 14. Do not neglect your gift. The word gift is the Greek word charisma. Oftentimes we think of charisma as somebody who has a winsome personality, a magnetic drawl of other individuals. We say he's very charismatic. She has a great deal of charisma. But the ancient word charisma actually means a gracious gift of God. That's what charisma is. That's what it means, a gracious gift of God. And if you are a Christian, you have been graciously given the gift of the Holy Spirit, and you've been graciously given a gift from the Holy Spirit. When I say you've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, what I'm saying to you is that if you are saved, if you are redeemed, if you are in Christ, then Jesus has given you the gift of the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity. It is that spirit that has sealed your salvation both now and forevermore. It is that spirit that is a deposit that guarantees to you what is to come, eternal life in heaven, face to face, forever. So the Holy Spirit has been given to you as a gift. It's that Holy Spirit that convicts you of your sin. It's that Holy Spirit that reminds you of God's truth. It's that Holy Spirit that directs your steps, telling you, yes, to keep going this way. Uh-uh, stop, start going that way. It's the Spirit of God that seals you unto his salvation. If you are saved, you are given the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that Spirit is with you all the time. You and I live post-Pentecost. And after Pentecost, the Spirit of God came and rested on every believer for every task, every time. So the Spirit of God never leaves us nor forsakes us. So we are sealed by the Spirit of the Lord, whether we're driving down the road or tying our tennis shoe. Regardless of what we're doing, we are Filled with the Spirit of God. We are anointed by the Spirit of the Lord. Your salvation has many gifts. One of the gifts is the gift of the Holy Spirit. But also, you have a gift from the Holy Spirit. We call this spiritual gifts. In the New Testament, there are listed about 21 spiritual gifts. You find them listed primarily in three passages. Romans chapter 12, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, and Ephesians chapter 4. And a spiritual gift, the strictest definition of it is simply this. It is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit. It is given to the believer by God for the common good of the church. That's a spiritual gift. It's a manifestation of the Spirit of God that is given by God to the believer for the common good of of building up the church. That's a spiritual gift. Now, I need to be very transparent up front with you. Uh, we don't always do a great job, and we need to do a much better job 
of helping believers discover their spiritual gift. We don't do that very well, and and shame on me and shame on us. We need to do a better job of helping believers identify their spiritual giftedness and then using it for the glory of God. I'm not sure that the list of 21 gifts were ever meant to be exhaustive in their scope. I think there could be more than these 21 gifts. I don't think there's anything less than these 21 gifts, but I think that there could possibly be some more. But in those 21 gifts, you're, you're going to find things like the gift of healing and the gift of helps, the gift of mercy. You're going to find the gift of preaching and teaching, the gift of prophecy, the gift of discernment, the gift of being able to speak in various languages, known and unknown, and then able to interpret those languages. You find all kinds of spiritual giftedness. And we need to do a better job of helping believers discover that gift and using it for the glory of God. But I will tell you, even though we need to do a better job, it, it's not hocus pocus. It's not some magical equation. Simply ask yourself questions like these. How has God passioned me? What do I like to do for God and for God's people? What gets me up out of bed? What keeps me going in the faith? What do other Christians say that I'm pretty good at doing? I think that when we answer those kind of questions, it kind of helps us to reveal and understand this is how God has shaped me and wired me and gifted me. And now that I know that, I've got to use it for his glory and for his good in the life of the church. We need to be people who know those gifts and utilize those gifts. Now, in discovery class, One of the things we talk about, we do talk about spiritual gifts, and we don't call it a spiritual gift inventory, but we simply call it an interest sheet, and we list out for people on a piece of paper, front and back, various ways that people can serve the saints in the church and through the church. And we just ask everybody that goes to the discovery class, hey, just share with us, what are you interested in doing? Are you interested in teaching or helping or encouraging or greeting? I mean, what what do you like to do? And because we're helping them to understand this is how God has gifted me. Now you got to know what your spiritual gift is. And just knowing it is half the battle. Because then you've got to use it for the glory of God. Here Paul says to Timothy, do not neglect your gift. Why would Paul have to tell Timothy, don't neglect your gift? Because there is a temptation to neglect the spiritual gift that God has given to you. In the second letter, 2 Timothy, Paul will say to him, stir up the gift. So in the first letter, don't neglect it. But apparently, Timothy wasn't really responding in the way that Paul wanted him to respond. So then in the second letter, he says, hey, stir up this gift. The phrase stir up the gift can also be translated, fan it into flame. I mean, use it to the best of your ability, to the glory of God. Don't let this thing die out. I think you could say that from Paul's perspective, what he's saying to Timothy is use it or lose it. Now, we don't always like that mentality when it comes to our spiritual gifts. But but hear what Paul is saying. He's saying you've been gifted on purpose and for a purpose. You've been gifted to use it because God's not going to waste his gift. So you use it for God's glory. 
You fan it into flame. You stir it up. And do not be negligent. You dedicate yourself to the gift of God. You dedicate yourself to the God of the gift, right? If you're sitting there thinking to yourself, um, you know, I'm, I'm not quite sure what my spiritual gift is. I know that I'm a Christian. I know I've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit, but I'm not real sure of the gift from the Holy Spirit. I don't know exactly what God has gifted me to do. Friend, can we talk just one-on-one? Maybe can you talk with another one of the pastors or talk with one of our deacons, any of the leadership of the church, and just sit down. Let's just talk. Let's just try to discern together. It's not that we have all the, all the ideas, but we do think that together we could probably come to a pretty good idea of how God has wired you and shaped you. I can tell you this much. You were not saved to sit and soak. You weren't saved to stand on the sidelines. You were saved to get in the game. I don't think God saved you to then send you to the showers. I think he saved you so you'll get in the game. So you'll be engaged in fighting lostness. That you'll be engaged in ministering to the body of Christ. That you will be engaged in doing what God has called you to do. Don't sit and waste the giftedness that God has given to you. I think that God has saved you to get in the game. And if I'm reading the signs correctly, it's the fourth quarter. And God has saved you for such a time as this. He has saved you for these moments. And these moments of this your life, we are in the fourth quarter. I don't, know, I don't know where we are in the fourth quarter. I don't know if it just started. I don't know if we're down to the two-minute warning. I don't know where we are in the fourth quarter. But I'm convinced, if I'm reading the signs correctly, that we are in the fourth quarter. It won't be long before Jesus will split the eastern sky and he'll descend. Until he comes. Until he comes. Dedicate yourself to the gift of God. His gift has been given to you in the Spirit. His gift has been given to you from the Spirit. Know what it is and use it for His good and for His glory. When we talk about this gospel hope, we, we've got to be devoted to the living God. We've got to be dedicated to the gift of God. But third and finally, we've got to be diligent in our obedience to a holy God verses 15 and 16. Right there in verse 15, you find the word diligent. The word diligent simply means to practice, cultivate. So because of this gospel hope that we've been given, the expectation is that we cultivate a life of obedience in our lives individually and in our lives corporately. So we are diligent in this matter. We practice what we preach. We practice what we've heard preached. We put into practice the things that God has given to us from his word. We develop and cultivate a community and a culture of obedience. And Paul says that you do this to such a degree that others see your progress. He doesn't say that others see your perfection. There's no one perfect except Jesus Christ. So we're not perfect in our obedience, but we do strive to cultivate a community of obedience. 
in, in, our, in our lives individually and in our lives corporately. We try to stockpile some obedience for the glory of God. And when we disobey him, and we, and we will, because I don't know about you, but there are times that I do pretty good. There are other times I will fall flat on my face. It's humiliating. It's embarrassing, actually. Anybody else embarrassed by their failures? Okay, I'm the only one. Okay, there's a couple of us. Praise the Lord. I mean, it's embarrassing. I mean, I, I can go so well, do so good, and then just fall flat on my face. And in those moments where I fail, and in those moments where you fail, there's an immediate healthy dose of repentance. God, I am sorry. I am a wretch, and I thank you for saving me, and I thank you for forgiving me one more time. Thank you, God, for your goodness. We are to build a stockpile of obedience, but we're still going to fail from time to time. And when we do, we respond with repentance unto the Lord. So Paul says, let other people see your progress. Let me ask the question. Um, are you more diligent in obedience today than you were this time last year? Are you more diligent in your obedience? Are you stockpiling more obedience today than you did five years ago? You say, Pastor, I don't know. I want to. I, I, what, what do you mean? Well, are there areas of life of your Christian faith where you are showing progress in prayer? in Bible study, scripture memorization, in fasting, in generosity, in evangelism, in being engaged and involved on mission trips, uh, being attentive, not just appearing, but being engaged in a worship service. Are there areas where, where, where you can see a progress, you can see an advancement, you can see uh, more sanctification in your life? Is there an area where you see that? Paul says, live in such a way that other people see your progress. Now, if that's true for all of us, that we are progressing in our faith in Christ, and it's being worked out in our community and a culture of obedience, then when I see your progress, I need to encourage you. And when you see my progress, you need to encourage me. And where we see one another's progress, we need to encourage each other. I think that by deduction, you can come to that conclusion from this passage, let other people see your progress. And when they see your progress, it, they, they comment, they encourage you, and it stirs up your faithfulness unto the Lord. I realize that here at the church, um, encouragement is not always at the top of the list. There are some of our brothers and sisters, they actually think that discouragement is a spiritual gift. I don't know why you do it like that. I don't know why. Look, well, look at that over there. Look right over here. That's terrible. I can't believe that's happening. I can't believe that's going on. That is not a spiritual gift. Discouragement is not a spiritual gift. But encouragement is. Just think about the word encouragement. It's putting courage in somebody. What is discouragement? It's depleting courage out of somebody. So we, when we see other people's progress in the faith, we need to encourage them. Because this progress, this culture of diligence, this community of obedience, when we see it in other people's lives, we need to encourage one another. Because when we encourage each other, that will stir it up even in a greater fashion. Now, 
One of the worst places to be is a place where you are not self-aware. Have you met people like that? I mean, they think they look good and they don't look good. They think they can sing and they can't sing. You know, I mean, we know people who are not self-aware. We need to be self-aware. What are the areas where we are progressing in the faith? You need to have at least one, maybe more than one area. I, I've always been enamored with really good athletes. I think I'm that way because I was not a really good athlete. So I really was inspired by them. But when you find an athlete, maybe he just had an accomplishment, won a championship, whatever. And in the interview that follows that, in the days and weeks to follow, he or she will say, you know, um, in this offseason, I really want to focus on this area of my game. That inspires me. They're being self-aware. They're saying, you know what? I'm not quitting. I haven't arrived. I know I just got the chip. I know I just won the championship, but, but I'm not arrived. So I need to work on this area of my game. Friends, there are areas of the faith that we need to work. There are areas of of holiness. There are areas of purity. There are areas of sanctification. And we need to work that bad boy because we never arrive. We don't get to the point. I'm not just talking to students today. I'm talking to anybody on the faith journey with Jesus. I don't care how old you are, how young you are. I want you to be a person who is diligent in your obedience to a holy God. You cultivate that community of obedience unto Christ. Let other people see your progress. And when other people see your progress, may they encourage you. And when you see somebody else's progress, why don't you encourage them? Paul says to Timothy, watch your life. Watch your doctrine closely. It's really two commands. It's the same words, but it's applied to both. Watch your life. Watch your doctrine closely. It can be likened to two pedals on a bicycle. If you're going to get down the road, those two pedals have to work in tandem. That's what Paul is saying. As you walk with Christ, as you develop this, this diligent obedience to a holy God, you watch your life and watch your doctrine closely. It's two pedals on a bicycle. Watch your doctrine. That's what you believe. Watch your life. That's how you behave because what you believe ought to shape how you behave, and how you behave ought to be shaped by what you believe. Two things that work in tandem. The people that have had a wreck in their life is usually because they failed to watch either their life or their doctrine. They failed to watch their life, and they allowed sin to come in. They failed to watch their doctrine. And they allowed heretical beliefs to come in. And it twisted their stinking thinking. You've got to watch your faith, your life, and watch your doctrine closely. Paul says persevere in them. The word persevere means stick with it. Keep on laboring. Keep on agonizing. Keep on at it. Keep on working it. You're not working for salvation. You're working from salvation. You are working out your salvation in fear and trembling. You keep doing this because God's gospel hope has been given to you. If you look at that gospel hope, I want you to see it in 
3D. I want you to see it three different dimensions. One, you you got to be devoted to the living God. Number two, you got to be dedicated to the gift of God. And you got to be diligent in your obedience to a holy God. When I get to the end of this thing and I look back at my life and I try to be self-aware, I do realize that there are times that I feel like I, I do okay, but there are more times than I want to admit that I fail and I falter. So now when I come to the end, I've got to circle back to the beginning. The only way I can make it is by putting my hope in the living God. It's a trustworthy statement. It deserves full acceptance. The only way we're going to live out this gospel hope is to put our hope in the living God. We do not put our hope in ourselves. We do not put our hope in our systems. We do not put our hope by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. We don't even put our hope in friends and family. No, we put our hope in the living God. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All of the ground is sinking sand. When darkness seems to hide his face, I rest on his unchanging grace in every high and stormy gale my anchor holds within the veil on Christ the solid rock I stand all of the ground is sinking sand all of the ground is sinking sand when he shall come with trumpets sound oh may I then in him be found dressed in his righteous little fullest to stand before the throne on Christ the solid rock I stand all of the ground is sinking sand all of the ground is sinking sand friend put your hope in the living God Our Father, we bow before you. And Father, on this day, we hear your voice. You are calling some people to faith in Jesus Christ. Give that person boldness to come and to receive you by faith, to make public what you're doing privately in their heart. Oh, Father, today we hear you as you're calling the redeemed those that are believers in the Lord, you're calling us to live out that gospel hope. And so some of us just need to come and pray because we need help. Lord, we're praying for ourselves, our friends, our family members. We're praying for our son, our daughter. We're praying for that individual who's in the far country. Lord, please, please soften his heart. Make her receptive to your sweet gospel. Lord, there's some of us who just need to come and fall on our face before you and just pray. Still others need to come and join the church. Lord, whatever you're calling us to do, Lord, help us to be devoted and dedicated and diligent because you are the giver of that great hope. Lord, our firm foundation is in Christ and Christ alone. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.